1: Welcome to New Books and Jewish Studies, a podcast channel of New Books Network. I'm your host, Schneer Zalman-Newfield. How does ultra-Orthodox Jewish literature describe the male body? What does the body represent? What is the ideal male body? In The Male Body in Ultra-Orthodox Jewish Theology, published in 2021 by Pickwick Publications Yakir Englander presents a philosophical theological exploration of the different images of the male body in ultra-orthodox literature since the Holocaust. The body is not incidental to this community but is the axis by which it tries to understand its meaning and its role in life. Yakir Englander is a scholar and an activist who teaches at the Academy for Jewish Religion and is also a host on the New Books Network podcast. In fact, he uh, had first interviewed me when my book came out uh, about two years ago, and then uh, through that interview, I got so inspired and ended up joining the uh, New Books Network podcast family, and so now I have the great delight and joy of interviewing him on his new book. Welcome, welcome to uh, our discussion today.
2: Thank you so much, Zalman. And I'm so happy and proud that I had the gift to bring you to the New Books family. So it's such a gift to be here.
1: Terrific, terrific. So let's get started. Could you please tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to write this work?
2: Of course. Thank you so much. So um, as you can hear probably from my accent, um, I am not an American. I grew up in Israel. I grew up in a in in an ultra orthodox uh, Hasidic community, which is um, the more extreme um, community inside the Jewish tradition, and the Has the ultra orthodox, I think that it's like a name that inside that we have different sects of or groups or communities of these Jewish communities that live more extreme life. And we will maybe need to ask the question, what does it mean more extreme life? And um, in general, I will say that they say, they put limits and say many times no to Western culture. However, they choose to live inside Western culture. And I will say even more than that, in the most, in the biggest cities, right? So we can speak about like New York, they don't choose to be in like Minnesota, or in somewhere, you know, in Phoenix, Arizona. (laughs) It used to be in the middle of New York, but still to say no to many elements of modernization. It was also true in Israel. However, the unique maybe element for me is that in Israel, I was born and raised in a city that the whole city dedicated only to the ultra-Orthodox, okay? And uh, in that way, it's unique, because for me personally, until I was in my late teenager years, I never met or spoke seriously with someone who was secular, um, or for sure not with a non-Jew, um, also for sure not with women woman who is not part of the family. And even inside the family, you know, it's limited to what you're allowed to speak about. And that opened many questions and many themes that I think my book, I try to touch in, in my book around the theology. A few more things that made me who I am and led me to write this book is that when I was 22 years old, actually started when I was 18. I start um, my family, um, you know, spoke with me about creating my family to get married. And I remember that when I started dating inside the ultra-Orthodox community, I felt that gap, the gap of gender between men and women is so big that actually I don't know how to create intimacy with women. Inside my community, which raise big questions. And one of the questions that I will only name it now is what happened in the wedding night after the end of the celebration, of you know, when all the community celebrate together? What happened in the, in, in, in when they come to the room, this 18, 19 years old men and woman. Who never spoke between gender until they got engaged, right? Or if, which is a few dates, they never touch the other sex. What happened to them? So if we go with Disney movie, you can imagine, like, oh my God, this is the most intimate, beautiful thing. I think that it's much more complex. And I think, and I will say something very harsh. That in some ways, it can be mutual rape of each other. And, and, and again, I, I know I know that I'm saying something very radical and extreme. And I think that, you know, the community help them in cultural ways, how to engage that. But I think that there is big trauma that can happen. And I know that it happened many times. And actually, this reason was one of the main reasons, one of the main reasons, not the only, that gave me the courage to decide to leave the community with a lot of love. So I didn't left and I said, like, you know, go to hell, all of you, your extreme Jews. I love my community. I feel very lucky that life chose me to be born there and to get the tools. However, I'm super lucky to have the courage for myself to leave the community. Uh, um, as I left, I joined the Israeli military and I served in the Israeli army um, for three years and many years later in a reserve in a special unit that identify the dead bodies of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And it's very important since the questions around body and what is our body and what does it mean dead body and what does it mean live body are walking with me. And as I continue my travel of years of from the moment that I left, which is now 23 years after I left, I'm 45 years old, I became very involved in different techniques of how to listen to the body questions around body and trauma, um, dance, movement, yoga, karate, tantra, um, different religious elements of using the body, like the Sufi tradition, and the mon- more the Catholic monastic tradition around bodies, and, and the Buddhist one. And I think that this life that involve theory and practical um, are very important for me, and it led me to write this book that I deeply care
1: about. Well, thank you for that really wonderful introduction to your 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 own life, your own psyche, your own travels with your body, through your body, in your body uh, that you that you've gone through, and and that led you to this book. Um, I think it might be helpful just to make one clarification in terms of who exactly that we're, we're, we're speaking about when we talk about the, the the theology, which community specifically we're speaking about when we talk about the, the theology of the body that we're going to discuss. Um, so it's interesting. You mentioned that you grew up in the Hasidic community, as did I, and we both left that community in our own in a ways, um, and it's interesting. I think for most outsiders, when they think about the ultra-orthodox Jewish community, uh, especially recently, when they think about uh, uh, memoirs or or uh, documentaries or films, Netflix uh, miniseries, and so on that have recently um, uh, come to light, uh, they tend to focus on the Hasidic community, which in one one branch or another, we're both connected to. But it's interesting that your book specifically focuses on a different segment of the ultra-Orthodox Jewish community. Could you introduce us a little bit to this segment that you focus on and maybe tell us why you chose to focus on that segment of the ultra-Orthodox community rather than the more common uh, um, Hasidic community, which you yourself were originally a part of?
2: Yeah, wow, thank you so much. And um, Zalman, for this question, and or maybe even questions, um, it's fascinating because you're totally right. When we think about, like, the media, let's just name it. If you go to Netflix today and you want to learn about the ultra-Orthodox, you watch unorthodox. Or if you want to learn about the Israeli side of the ultra-Orthodox, you watch Shtiso. Um if you, if you read, you know, um, Chaim Potok, so his novels are about the Hasidim or even Becoming Eve, which is um, was just published lately. I think it's interesting that there is a lot of focus on the Hasidic community. The reason why we have much more focus on the Hasidic community is that for them, the body, the relationship with the body is, I think, I would not say it's more healthy, but I will say that they see the body as part of the... Of the, the how to practice the relationship with the divine, so for them, like to eat is very important in some ways. Um, they eat every Friday night with a rabbi. They go and they dance, um, and they focus around that. I think it's much more complex. But the reason why I choose not to focus on them but to put the light on the Lithuanian or um, as we call them, or in America, maybe some people know them as more yeshivish. The reason why I choose to focus on them are for two. One is very personal. I felt that focusing on the Hasidic will be too intimate for me. And, And as a scholar, I needed a little bit gap between me and the subject of research. So I choose not to focus on them. The second thing is that when you ask even the Hasidic community what is the most important thing that you need to do today? I don't speak about the 19th century, I don't speak about the 18th century, I speak about today, after the Holocaust until 2022. Every rabbi and every scholar and every student who is a man, and also women will say that, they want that the students will focus on learning the Jewish text. This is the essence. Then they will tell you, you need also to pray, of course, and we have huge focus on that. You need to dance, you need to whatever. But the focus is, is to be Talmid Chacham, a scholar of the Jewish text. The Lithuanian community, which is not a small one, we hear less about them, but they are huge the Lithuanian community or the yeshivish community or the mitnagdim, you name it, they took this ideal of learning the Jewish text to the extreme. They built their community from the 18th century around the Jewish text. And therefore, since my book wanted to understand the ideal Jewish body, what is the Jewish body? How we want to think about the Jewish body in this theology. Also, the ultra-orthodox from the Hasidic community, in many ways, they rely on what's happening in the yeshiva, in the institute. That it's all the institute that was created by the Lithuanian yeshivish community. So even if today you went to, when you were a teenager, you went, Zalman, to the yeshiva, the institute, the equivalent to high school or to college, of the dynasty of Chabad, which is a Hasidic dynasty, the fact that you went to yeshiva, to this institute, is actually a fruit, a gift, that the Lithuanian Mitnagdim gave. And therefore, I wanted to go to them and to try to do analyzation of why they create the institute as it is, where the body should be when all what you need to focus on is your mind, and what's happening in this this fascinating relationship between body and mind.
1: All right, terrific. And so, just just to to, to clarify uh, on a, a very practical level, the the um what we're you refer many times in the book as the Lithuanian tradition, um, Uh, we're really not speaking about Jewish life in Lithuania today. We're really speaking about an intellectual, spiritual uh, community uh, that descends from Lithuania before the Second World War, before the Holocaust. But then because of the Holocaust, uh, the people who survived left Lithuania and either went to Israel primarily, either to Israel or to America, although there's some representation of this, uh, branch of the Orthodox Jewish community in other, uh, uh, parts of the world. But they're really primarily in America, in places like, um, um, uh, uh, <laughs> now I'm stumped, but in, in B'nai Barak in Israel, uh, as well as other cities, and um, also in, in parts of New York City uh, and the greater New York area in, in America. And so that's what we're you're referring to when you're talking about the Lithuanian tradition. You're talking about these Jewish ultra-Orthodox Jewish communities that have their their uh, their 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 uh, literal and kind of symbolic ancestry in Lithuania, but are no longer there, uh, you know, nowadays. Yeah, yeah,
2: thank you so much, Zalman, for saying that. Yes, it's very important.
1: Okay, so so now that we know who we're talking about, um, you mentioned that. Um, that for the in in this ultra orthodox theology the body is defined as a border between the divine image that selem elohim and the evil inclination the yetzer hara what do you mean by that
2: yes thank you and so every society and every community we need to we 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 are asking hard questions around the body Because the body is a very tricky place from philosophical, sociological point of view. On the one hand, we are the body. If I ask you, give me the water, you are not going to start analyze and send an email to your hand how to bring the water. You bring me the water, which means your body knows how to do it. Now, by the way, Zaman, if I'm going to ask you, tell me which muscle now you use in order to bring me the water. You will not know, because the body has knowledge, and you are this body. This is on the one hand. On the other hand, and unlike other some other creatures in nature, maybe all of them, but let's say some of them, we are not only the body. And there is a feeling of alienation, of struggle with our bodies, right? Our bodies, we can say no to the body. We have desires and we say no. And then we need to interpret what's happening here. Because the body, as much as we want to believe that we are individual and we control what we are, we are not. And every society deals with that in different ways. The ultra-Orthodox community, let's call them from now on the ultra-Orthodox community, even that we know we focus on the Lithuanian one, traditional one. For them, since the ideal Jew, which is a man, and we need to say that, okay? I will not come to the gender, maybe later, but when we speak about the Jew, unfortunately, they only mean man. The ideal Jew needs to dedicate his life to the wisdom of the old sacred Jewish text. Therefore, the body becomes a problem because it's only hurt this process. There is nothing to do with the body. If I would tell you, for example, if we would be, let's say, Sufi, Muslim Sufi, and I will tell you, let's worship the divine. So you need to learn how to dance and to move with your body, which means the body is part of that when you are a Lithuanian, that all what you need to do is to study the text, the fact that now your body is hungry or you have sexual desire and it's, or you're just tired, it's a problem. What my claim is, and this is the important part, that it's much more nuanced than that, that since the body is a challenge, the ultra Orthodox theology use the term body to put inside this word or term all the problems that they have with their life. So, for example, I will give you an example. There is a beautiful text, and again, all the texts are so rich and and and, and because they are so not Western, but they are written in the middle of Western society. So, for example, you have a student who is 19 years old, and he has a problem with uh, dating. Like, he feels that, you know, he feels that the women are much smarter than him. Maybe he's not pretty enough, etc., etc. The rabbi tells him, listen, all your feelings, you feel that you are not good enough. You feel that you don't study good enough. You feel that you are tired. You feel depressed. This is all your body. This is not you. <laughs> which means that the body now, it's not only the body. The body now according to this rabbi, which is a very famous rabbi and very influenced one, he's, it's also your emotions. And my claim is that at one point and slowly slowly after the, the Holocaust and for some reasons, then that word body become actually a term that hold together, any emotional physical challenge that this community has with life. And therefore, by looking at the term body, you can learn many of the existential questions of this society And why it's interesting for two reasons. One it's interesting because as scholars of religion, and as community that many times we, Every Jewish community, I think, looking a little bit up to the yeshiva world, to this institute world, even if you are a liberal Jew, by the way, you come to Israel and you look at them and you say like, ah, these are real Jews. these are real Jew. You know, you're a foreign rabbi, you are liberal, you are post, whatever. Yes, this is sweet. They are the real Jews. I, I don't want to go into that, but we cannot ignore that. Which means that many Jewish leaders feel that there is truth around that. So it's fascinating. Secondly, it's fascinating, Zalman, since this community is saying no in many ways to Western culture. It's interesting to see what the alternative that they offer, because I think many times when we are in our Western discourse, that many of the listeners probably feel themselves part of the you know Western society, even there are Muslim, Christian, Buddhist. Secular atheists, etc. It's fascinating to see how different communities can say no, and then what do they offer? And this is a place where my book is dealing with these questions.
1: Right, right. And uh, you mentioned that 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 um, you know you're really focusing on the thought um, related to the body in ultra orthodox society, uh, post Holocaust. You know, and um, obviously, the the ultra orthodox community, the orthodox community, existed before the Holocaust, and um, a good deal of the inspiration for the thought that you describe in your book is clearly taken from texts or stories about people. who lived before the Holocaust. So what is it that you feel, the? how is it that the Holocaust shaped um, thinking around the body in the ultra-Orthodox community in in new ways?
2: Wow. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. I love this question. So I want, in many ways, and I want to focus on three. The first thing is, that the Holocaust challenged the ultra-Orthodox community in a new way, and I want to explain. If you were a Jew before the Holocaust, and some anti-Semitic came to you, what did they tell you? They tell you like that. Listen, my friend. Listen, Zalman. You are bad. (laughs) Why? Because you're Jewish. We need to solve this problem. You have two options. One is... If you really want to keep being Jewish, I'm going to kill you. However, the problem is with your religion. Therefore, I want to offer you another option. Become Christian, let's say, or Muslim, and you will save your life and I will, even will give you a lot of honor. Then the Jew would choose to kill his body and to keep his spirit. And he became a holy Jew in the Jewish narrative. We have a term for that. It's called Kiddush Hashem. To sanctify the name of the divine. Nice. This is, we all know, any Jew know that term. This is like the basic of of Jewish challenging and how we deal with that during the history. Let's leave it. Now came the Holocaust. The Jew came to the Holocaust. The Nazis hated him. Then he came and he was waiting that so the Nazis will tell him, listen, my friend, you are Jewish, we have a problem with you. You have two options. One, that you are going to kill to become to continue to be Jew, and we will I will kill you. I will send you to Auschwitz. The other option, join us, become a real Nazi, <laughs> a good friend of the German or the Austrian or the Lithuanian, you name it. And then you will get huge honor then the Jew could choose to go to Auschwitz and to feel an honorable Jew. The challenge? The Nazis didn't care about what you believe at. You could be an atheist Jew, you could be a liberal Jew, you could be whatever second generation non-Jew that his grandparents were Jews. The Nazis didn't care about what you believe. They care about your race, about your body. The ultra-orthodox community needed to struggle with this problem after the Holocaust. And the body, not the soul, not the belief, become a center of the Jewish problem. So this is one reason why the body is so important. The second reason why the body is so important is not connected only to the Jewish tradition or to the ultra-orthodox one. After the Holocaust, and has a long, long um, um, you know, history, The body became the essence of Western society. I mean, we cannot ignore about that. Think about, and when we read Michel Foucault, who is a French philosopher, a sociologist, amazing scholar, you know, he helped us to understand that. The question of the 20th century and probably also the 21st century is questions around the body. Jean-Paul Sartre, Albert Camus, all the existentialism. Questions around feminism and the place of the body. The law in Western society that a husband is not allowed to rape his wife, which means he can rape her body, even that identity they are still husband and wife. LGBTQ, right? Now we can also add AI. All these questions, race, blackness, whiteness, This is our very connected to the body, the freedom of sex, the 70s. The ultra-Orthodox community, since they choose not to build their communities somewhere isolated in, you know, Himalaya mountains or like in (laughs) Africa, but in the middle of Brooklyn, New York, next to the hipsters, they must deal with the body. They cannot ignore that. For sure in Israel, when they are the only community, And the Arabs, who do not serve in the army, and they don't lost the bodies. So the body is a question, because they don't serve in the military. Now I want to come to the third element. The third element is, yes, it started before the Holocaust. And here comes the interesting part. Before the Holocaust, since the Holocaust is such a trauma, that this community lost actually everything that happened before, The communities, the leaders of the community, they can create crazy narratives about how rabbis use their bodies or behave with the bodies in ways that are irrelevant to a student who is now 20 years old in Jerusalem in a yeshiva, in the institute. Because the situation today, he has food today. To be poor today is not to starve when we are in Israel and America. Before the Holocaust, it means that sometimes you didn't eat for three days. So the editors of the stories, the theologians, they can create so much narrative around the body that you just cannot compare because the Holocaust destroy everything.
0: This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com.
1: Right, right. So we're really talking about a different society and a different culture that's in some ways connected to the past Jewish history, but, but obviously the Holocaust is a real break from previous norms and modes of, of being. Um, um okay. So speaking of, of narratives that are developed about stories about people who live before the Holocaust, um, Could you tell us who Rabbi Yaakov Yisrael um, Kanievsky was and what did he eat for breakfast in the anecdote at the beginning of your book?
2: It's fascinating. It's fascinating. Listen to that. Listen to this story. We have a rabbi who actually, you know, he survived the Holocaust. He came before and to Bnei Brak. He was in a very poor place, but he was raised in Lithuania.
1: He came to Israel.
2: He came to Israel, to Palestine then, then later to Israel from Lithuania. Now, this rabbi, that everyone knew him. Now, even if you didn't know him because you were born after his death, you still know him today because his son is the most important figure in this community, Reb Chaim Kanievsky, right? So you you really have like the life relic. You don't need relics. You have the life relic because you have his son. The story about this rabbi that around 5 p.m. in the afternoon, his friend is coming to him and says like, why you didn't have breakfast? And he said, what do you mean? Of course I had breakfast. So he said, you didn't have breakfast, that the plate next to you is still here and it's still full. And he said, like, I know I ate breakfast. He said, like, how do you know that you ate breakfast? He said, he doesn't, by the way, he doesn't say because I'm not hungry. He says, because I remember that I said the blessing before and after the meal. So he said, but de facto you didn't eat. (laughs) So something doesn't make sense. (laughs) So they start thinking and they found that pieces from the roof of the institute fall, because it was a very old institute. And he ate these pieces from the roof. Now, why I love this story so much and it's such a symbolic one. First of all, because the building where you study Torah, where you study the Jewish text, become now part of the body of the rabbi. It's like the Christian in Eucharist they eats the body of Jesus, he eats the body of the temple of the building of where he studied. The second, that he didn't say, I want to starve myself, which we can find in some other, you know, tradition, asceticism. It's not new for us. No, officially, he is totally for food. However, he cannot care less about what he eats. Now, Zalman, we both now living in America and we both living, you know, with... eh, You know, kind of the same, I'm sure, circles. When we go to dinners, how many times people speak about like, oh my God, the food is so delicious. Oh, it's vegan. It's vegetarian. It's (laughs) gluten-free. It's like that. Oh, it's so yummy. How you did that? From which restaurant you took it? Like 50% of the talks, so many times I am living in intentional community. Believe me, I'm dying. Why I'm dying? Because I grow up and study with the same institute. For me, the fact that people speak about food, okay, so you ate, but why do you make a big deal from that? (laughs) Right? This is a fascinating mirror to Western society. Like, do we fetishize in some ways our food? In the name of healthy, in the name of, okay, it's healthy. By the way, I went to some, Um, I I, I love doing meditation and I have the gift of learning about that. So I went, you know, to different kind of seminar retreats and you eat intentionally. Eating intentionally is not what we do in these meals with our friends. Eating intentionally is to eat very simple and to really listen to what happens when you eat. We fetishize our food. The ultra-orthodox in a way fetishize the books and they say, To eat breakfast or to eat the ceiling is the same if it gives me energy to study. But it means that you also deeply neglect the body. Now, neglect the body is not just that your body becomes sick, which is, by the way, part of the stories that I show in the book is like, oh, when you become like sick, you actually become closer to the divine in some ways. Or farther from desires, you know, because when you're sick, you have flu, you don't feel sexy. (laughs) You don't feel sexy. Oh, thanks God, I don't need to deal with sexuality. You know, so in a way, they really fetishize, I mean, the antibody. However, it's deeper than that. They don't see the body as part of what they are, who they are. And in that way, what is important for me, and maybe this can lead us to another question, I think Zalman that this community forget that at the end of the day, life chooses, God chooses us, you name it, to be with bodies. We're humans with bodies. And they neglect the body until the bodies scream. And I think that there are prices for this behavior, and we see it in many elements. We see it what happened when sexual desire happening between two men. It's hard when you get married, but actually you don't know how to do intimacy with your wife. And the the texts that they are creating actually emphasize not to have intimacy with your wife. And intimacy, by the way, is not only about how to have sex. Do you know, Zalman, a friend told me, his name is Dror, he told me, The challenge is not how do you have sex. People can have sex also with with people that they don't care at all. People go to prostitute, unfortunately. The challenge is that you also need to go to sleep every night next to a person that you don't have intimacy. And yes, I think that it's a question that this community must ask. And also, and this is connected to 2022, today, we know that in the past months in this community, we have more and more stories about sexual abuse, rape, led by top rabbis or leaders of the community. And it's only the beginning, you know, the icebreak of the real story. And I think that this society needs to do a lot of homework and reflection around that, because by pushing the body so much, the body becomes a monster that they create. My fear is that instead of welcoming the body and create healthy life in the ways they wish to, I'm not going to tell them how, I'm worried that they are going to make the body even worse and worse to judge the body and to put all the problems of the body on the body. And then the problems will just continue because we are humans with body. We embodiment in our bodies.
1: Right. So you're saying as soon as we try to neglect or deny or cover all over the existence of the body, it doesn't actually cause the body to disappear. It causes the body to, to, in a sense, have a dysfunction. It causes, it, it, it creates dysfunctions in, in in the literal body and in the Body politics, so to speak, the community, the body of the community, uh, problems that, that, that could have been avoided or could have been uh, decreased if the body and the challenges of the body were handled in a more direct fashion, more open and honest fashion.
2: And, and my words, Alman, of course, that because Western society, at least in some parts of Western societies, you know, they decided to celebrate the bodies, which I love so much, and I celebrate my body, but in ways that also don't want to ask the other questions of the mirror. It's like, what happens when bodies are all over? And of course, ideal bodies like porn, that no man or woman or they, them can be as in this porn. What does it do to our kids? And where is the courage of our leaders, our educational leaders to say, stop it. (laughs) I mean, Let's stop it. It's a war because it's destroying us, right? So you have also the other side. And then the ultra-Orthodox, it's easier for them to say, we need to worry from this Western porn. Therefore, no phone, no internet, no and no and no. And we need to remember, Zalman, that as much as I'm focusing in my book on the male body, there are 50% of the community which are the women, let's leave the day them but the women that do not are even in their radar to care about them. And they are not, and how do I know it? Because they are not allowed to study the most important Jewish thing, which is this sacred text, right? So it's really important for me. And this book, and this is something that I want to mention, when I wrote the book in English, the English version, you know, I'm in the academy but I'm also working outside of the academy. It's very important for me, personally, for Yakir. When I write a book, I think about my listeners and my readers. My readers in English are not only scholars in Jewish studies or in religious studies. I want to write to people who care about questions around religion in this book and about the body. And I think that scholar or a reader, lay leader who is going to read this book can take the examples from the ultra-Orthodox community and very fast and very easily can translate it to her or they or to their traditions. If it's Christianity, Buddhism, atheism, I think the, the book is a mirror on question that to every society we need to ask. And this is a lot by the help of my translator, and I will say the person who rendered the book, and um, Dr. Henry R. Cars, that he did tremendous, beautiful, sensitive work around the language of this book.
1: Yes, the the book I, I should mention is really uh, a, a delight to read. As as a as an academic who uh, uh, often ha- for work has to read many academic uh, uh, you know, tracks and 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 writing that uh, is very turgid and and kind of uh, heavy and difficult to get through. I think that your book is really graced with a kind of uh, a beauty and and, and joy <laughs> that 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 adds uh, so much to the experience of, of, of learning the ideas that you, that you set out in your book. Um, uh, speaking of the audience uh, for the book, and you were just talking about how within the ultra Orthodox community, uh, you, you know, um, very recently there was a kind of, you um, Explosion of concern around the issue of sexual abuse, or the the covering up, and the the the, the uh, dishonesty and 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 um, uh, apologetics around um, uh, sexual abuse within the ultra orthodox community. And you were just saying how you hope that that uh, 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 you know things would be improved. Um, you mentioned at the end of your book that your book is quote, an external view, albeit a reflective and loving one, of the ultra-Orthodox community, and that you had a sincere hope that ultra-Orthodox readers uh, would would engage with your book and think seriously about it. I'm wondering, um, do you think that there are members of the ultra-Orthodox community who are open to learning about their own community from a secular scholar such as yourself?
2: Wow. Thank you. This is, you know, Zalman, I love this question because I think it's a question that every scholar, we need to ask that, right? It's like a question that each one of us, even if you write about art in the 12th century, you need to ask, why do you write it, right? Um, first, I'm not a secular scholar. Um, I am someone who has a gift to grow up in a community but I also have now over half of my life, like over 20 years, that I'm not inside. So I'm inside-outside, outsider. i definitely not an insider. However, and here come my, my my philosophy around my role as a writer. I will tell you about the first book. The first book that it's also was translated to English. I wrote it, I co-wrote it with another incredible scholar, my teacher, Professor Avi Sagi. And it was about, not the ultra-orthodoxy, it was about another community, um, modern orthodoxy, or in Israel we call it Zionist orthodoxy, who are trying to involve Zionism and modernity together with their beliefs. And we wrote the book about, it's very much about sexuality, it's about LGBTQ, it's about like the role of women, etc., etc. And as we publish it, Tons of rabbis start writing against it, and they said that we don't understand anything and we need to burn their books. It's like it's so not relevant. What happened that more and more of them start writing against it? It made every students from or every you know teenager to wish to read the book, <laughs> and it sold out this is exactly what I tra- now. If they would read the book and they will say, ah. Oh, this is about us, but just the academic. It's so boring. And it's like the language is so, it's about phenomenology of Jean Sartre, you know, like about terms that they will not Kagar in very hard words. They will sound like, you know what, let's give five from our teenager to read it. They close it after two pages because they will fall asleep. And Khalas, as we say in Arabic, enough. But this is exactly my role, is not to do it. And also to write it in academy, academic language, but available to every person. I don't want to live in academy that is outside of the city. I want to live in academy that is a lighthouse for the city. For the people who are living in a storm, in the tempest, life is complicated people dealing with things. I'm not here to critique anyone. My role is to have dialogue with the society. And the version of the book in Hebrew that was published three or four years ago, I got hundreds of emails and connections and stories about how it touched people from the community because the community has... You know, the boundary between inside and outside become very wide, very wide, because this community is growing. And the people inside the boundaries between, they are reading. They are now working. They are reading. Some of them even serving now in the military. Women are the main breadwinners. They read. They are in high tech. They are lawyers. They read. And they know that they have have problems. The challenge is, that when you read the stories, as a story, Zalman, that you mentioned about Rabbi Yaakov Kanievsky, Rabbi Israel Yaakov Kanievsky, it sounds a beautiful story about a person who so inside his studies that he didn't sow what he ate. What is important for me is to show, first of all, that there is a whole theology around that. It starts with a sweet story. But it continue with rabbis who said that our bodies are rats and our bodies are pig. And, and and debate about how come that we even touch the 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 you know the text when we are children of women. It's not even human beings, children of women, because we all understand that women are totally body. These are the places that it's important for me to show that what do you do? And I want, to, if it's okay, someone, I want to take it to the next level. The next level is chapter six. In chapter six of the book, I'm doing something fascinating that started actually with a letter that I wrote to a rabbi. And he started writing me back. And this rabbi, at one point of his life, he's still with us, by the way, he became um, handicapped. He had big challenges with his body, couldn't move. And he was in bed. And we speak a, a, about a rabbi who is teaching, he is a Musar teacher, ethical teacher in the in the institute, a student of very famous another rabbi that you know and I know, Reb Shlomo Volbe, huge figure. And he is now in bed, cannot work. And he decided that because of that, he needs to have internet to communicate. And internet lead him to speak with Uchua Orthodox who have internet. And they ask him hard questions. Rabbi, we masturbate. What should we do with that? What should we do? And he sees that they are not evil people. Now, if he was not handicapped in at home, no students will come to him face-to-face at the institute and says, Rabbi, I masturbate. I have sexual desire. What should I do? Because he will feel so shame. He will be afraid that this rumor will come about him. He will be afraid that his matchmaker will hear about that and he will not find a good girl to get married with. But now it's internet. It's a virtual world. No faces. He does know the name. But he sees from the writing that they deeply care. And then he starts to investigate this question. And he come to incredible theology about the body, about the beauty of the body, about masturbation. about. And he's asking himself, how come that I'm changing? What happened to me? Why my body needed to broke in order that my relationship with the body will change and my theology will change and my Jewish law will change. Something doesn't make sense. And then at one point, a few years later, someone asked him, Rabbi, I'm gay. What should I do? And he understood that he needs to create a whole new theology. And why this story is so important, this chapter? Because at one point, this rabbi decided that the theology that he created to the community is too radical for the community. And with huge courage, he decided to leave the community with love, as you did and I did. And here you can see the limit of the discourse. And as Foucault, Michel Foucault said, the moments when we can see the limits, the boundary of the discourse, as you wrote beautifully in chapters of your book, Zalman, these are moments that we can study something very deep. And I'm fascinating that each one of us We'll see where is my limits. What can I learn from another tradition that maybe can shape and reshape my limits?
1: Right, right. So the that really is fascinating. And uh, the rabbi you're referring to, this is Rabbi Isaac Stern, uh, correct? And um, what does it say uh, about... Um, uh, about his approach that he developed uh, towards the body and towards sexuality um, that he felt that he himself was not able to remain within the ultra-Orthodox community and then ultimately ended up leaving it. What what does that say about the theology that he developed within the community?
2: It says a few things. First one, it's, it tells us that when the body is welcome to create theology, as happened to him, unfortunately by being disabled, but when, by sickness, but when he invited the body to the dialogue, his theology changed. Now, it's the same rabbi, the same text, the same technology, not technology, but the same books, the same sources. What changed? He understood that sometimes when you live in a discourse, specific discourse, you don't you are blind and when you change the discourse the same text the same rabbi the same students you change which is huge which is huge which bring me huge question that i'm dealing with my you know my daily life of like what we as israelis we don't see because we are not palestinians and we are not in a palestinian body what palestinians don't see because they are not in israeli you know, post-Holocaust bodies, what anti-Semitic don't see, what white people don't see, what men we don't see. How can a male leader have an opinion about abortion? I don't think that. He should say, I am a man, I have a lot of relation with text, blah, blah, blah. At the end of the day, I'm not a woman. <laughs> the It's the same about LGBTQ. What I have as a, you know, cis man, to say about they them, about trans people. I need to support them, to love them. It's not about I agree or disagree. It's not my role to agree or disagree. It's not my it's I cannot understand that. I need to love people, struggle. And what I love about that, the second thing that I want to say is Alman. At one point, and he's now a good friend of mine, so we we had a lot of dialogue. At one point. Rabbi Stern understood that actually this the new theology that he's creating, it's written in the text, but he didn't see the text, this text. Because he said, when I start dealing with that, actually I remember that my rabbi, Rabbi Volbe, who passed away, he told me once, stop talking about masturbation. It's not actually a problem. Which means that in the past we had oral text that were not written and were hided from the community. This is second. The third and last thing that I want to mention is he saw that the society rules will disagree to hold his theology, which means that it's not that there is theology against his theology, that there are social rules that prevent his new ultra-orthodox theology to be part of the discourse, not the only one, but one of the many. And when he understood that, he understood that it's actually not about his beliefs. It's about social drama, social rules. If it's about social rules, Rabbi Stern is very courageous, and he left.
1: Right, right. Well, there's obviously so much more that we could talk about. Your book is such a a, a treasure trove of insights, uh, both about the ultra orthodox theology related to the body. But it really does uh, encourage and inspire um, readers to think much, much more broadly, much more globally about, as you say, the problem of the body. How do we deal with the fact that the body is both matter and spirit, that the body has a physicality that can't be ignored or denied, but also has a consciousness and also is interconnected to social dynamics, and so on. So there's so much there for, for people to explore. Thank you so much for taking the time to share your thoughts with us today.
2: Zalman, it's a real gift to speak with you and to learn together with you. Thank you so much. Thank you for being part of the family of the New Books Network. It's an incredible family.
1: Indeed it is. Uh, that concludes our program. Thanks for listening and have a great day.